0: Welcome to Dwight in Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight, special quarantine edition. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Jacopo. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 5, Just Desserts, written by Laura Icorn, directed by James Wahlberg, guest-starring Lauren Reverd and Michael A. Cook. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched Season 3, Episode 5 yet, stop whatever you're doing. You can start your Bovine Advocacy Group's local chapter later and watch Just Desserts either on BYUtv or at BYUtv.com slash Dwight. And a little extra word, we usually record the podcast in the wonderful podcast booth at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. However, due to the coronavirus quarantine, we are recording this and future episodes from our respective homes via Skype. We very much appreciate your understanding regarding the audio quality, and we'll be back to our usual sound as soon as we're able. Now, a quick recap. Baldric goes to meet Hexla for a date, only to find lotions and potions ransacked and his witch-love kidnapped. He receives a ransom message from a hooded figure in the mirror and makes haste to the sunken castle where he finds that Hexla has been kidnapped by Maggie, her witch friend from Wishy-Washy part two. But it was a trap! Hexla the bait and Baldric the quarry. Maggie lured him there for the purpose of buying or stealing Baldrick for herself. Meanwhile, Greta is summoned for jury duty, or mob duty, perhaps more appropriately, at the Swine and Slosh Tavern, where, you guessed it, a cow is on trial. Since this particular cow can't speak for itself, Dwight must advocate for the heifer in order to save its life. Will the mob take stock in the cow's story? And will Baldrick and Hexla's story end in the stocks? We'll see! Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us are the creators, showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams, and Leanne H. Adams. Hello, Hi, Josh. 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 Hey, guys. Welcome back. And back with us again, the woman behind the witch who definitely knows how much dried back goes into an adoration aroma, Danielle Bazzuti.
1: Half bat, half bat. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and. For the first time on the podcast, we have the director of this episode, James Wahlberg.
2: It is a pleasure to be joining you guys for the first (laughs) time. It's a pleasure to have you, James. Thanks for being here.
0: All right, let's jump right in. Right at the top of the episode, Baldrick's getting ready for a date with Hexla. They're straight up dating now, still hiding it from the kids, but they are in it to win it. Why now? Why is it time for their relationship to move forward?
3: Well, here we are, <laughs> about 25 episodes in what feels like a nice midpoint for our, our overall story of Dwight and Shining Armor. Uh, and this is a place where, uh, in, the, in the story, relationships can start to turn and, and pivot and evolve. So we saw it just a little bit in the last episode with, uh, with Mirabelle. We saw a little bit of a warming up in the romance between Dwight and Greta. And it felt uh, also appropriate that some things would start to deepen for Baldrick and Hexla right around this time in the story. So as we're looking at it as a a big story told in about 50 episodes, um, it felt like the right time uh, for there to be a midpoint turn. That's
0: right. We're right in the middle of the series with this episode. That is exciting. So Baldrick goes to see Hexie. And when he gets there, lotions and potions has been ransacked. How do you go about destroying a set that you're going to need back in shape by the beginning of next episode's
2: shoot? I think the real trick is is not to destroy anything because you know by now these vases are as valuable as Ming dynasty vases. They've got so much equity, and uh, you know they're, they're a part of her salon. And so our trick was we knocked a bunch of stuff over without breaking it. So chairs upended, tables upended things scattered around and then we brought in other vases and and actually these crazy looking pieces of rubber multicolored rubber that look like shards of glass that the actors could actually walk on without you know getting torn to pieces um so we brought in a lot of stuff that could just be swept out afterwards um and then the real trick with anything like this is lensing because you know we put the camera right down on the floor I don't know if you recall, but we come across a bunch of very foregroundy broken items which support things tipped over in the background until we come upon that lone, uh, discarded shoe of Hexela. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Baldrick is, you know, he's crossing from the front of the store over this. So um, that it's a combination of those things to create the illusion of massive mayhem.
0: You mentioned the lone shoe. Let's go there, because you write One Lone Shoe into a script, and what does it do to your actress? Danielle, we find you in the sunken castle in the stocks in one high heel, and there you shall remain for the majority of the episode. That looks truly like torture. Uh, Just practically, how did you spend an entire shoot in the stocks in one high heel?
1: Well, you can see I'm still massaging my neck out, and I blame Brian (laughs) and Leanne and James for that. Because it was absolute torture. The irony is, uh, somehow I was destined to be in a stockade because... About eight years ago on my Nickelodeon series, they also put me in a stockade. It no. just so happened. Oh yeah, and and like the fans on Twitter found the two different images. I'm gonna have to send them to you. Danielle in her 30s in a stockade. You think I would have had some sort of personal evolution, but no, life has returned me to an even more torturous stockade that was higher. I had one high heel on. So our first day, Deep Goose, God bless him, he was, he was on me like rice because he could start to see my body like and i'm a dancer and i've had strength and an athlete but like you have one you know this this heel was like a little pin like the actual heel itself was a pin so he kept putting a little foam under my foot but being the sadist that i am i said no 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 if i'm going to be acting the way hexala would be she's not only being heartbroken but she's being tortured i have you have to take the foam away so i literally made myself even more uncomfortable in, in the circumstances, to give, a, to give a real natural performance as a thespian.
2: And, and that um, is a question I've always wanted to ask, was how were you able, in this stockade, to cry so legitimately as the scene wore on and question answered?
1: Question asked, <laughs> then answered. There you go. But having said all that, like it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm am to- I'm a little bit of a tomboy, even though I have the red lips all the time. So I, I, I enjoy the challenge of, of a good, uh, a good torture device, as it were.
0: <laughs> oh, and what is it that Joel always says? Pain is temporary, but laughter is forever. So James, Danielle is in the stocks, and soon Baldric will be as well. And we stay on the sunken castle set for the entire A story of this episode. We also spend the rest of the B story in the swine and slosh. How does your strategy for shooting an episode change when you're largely relegated to only two sets for the duration?
2: Well, essentially, you treat it like two completely different shows. So we, you know, we picked the two uh, massive sequences. I think we did the Swine and Slush Tavern first, spent a day and a half maybe on that, and then uh, came over and worked in the Sunken Castle. And it was also two completely different casts because there was no co-mingling of the story. So that that was kind of unique. The the other thing that was interesting about this thing is not only were we locked into one location for both sides of the story, but within that, each location was very unusually sedentary because uh, courtroom drama is almost always lensed and choreographed the same way because you know, there's going to be a judge up there. There's going to be you know a, a crowd watching. Um, there's going to be people that come up and, and talk. There isn't always going to be a cow, but there's going to be <laughs> you know some sort of a witness. Um, and then in the other one, pretty much any time you take your two main stars and put them in pillories, you know they're going to hit their marks because they're not moving. <laughs> and so essentially a lot of the fun for me because I TV shows um, done a lot of uh, very moving camera dance things and um, I do a lot of action stuff and commercials and different things like that. So it was a really fun challenge to say nobody's going anywhere. And so we're going to spend our time exploring uh, a very sort of sedentary subject matter. So it turned out to be a lot
4: of fun. If I could just add on to that, this is what we call a bottle episode. And when we were with our writer's room, uh, it was a challenge that we gave ourselves uh, for several reasons, the budget among them, uh, to come up with ideas that could be fun and interesting and funny while being all on our sets and, and shot in a way that uh, required fewer resources than others. And so this, this is a result of, of that challenge that we gave ourselves.
0: And I think because the sets are so different from one another, watching it, it doesn't feel constricted. You don't feel like you're watching a bottle episode. It's only when you think about it and you go,
4: oh, right, these are two regular sets. Add little things in there like a cow and it sort of spices
0: <laughs> it
4: up. <laughs> so in
0: order to protect Baldric, Hexla tells Magi that he's not her servant. He's her magician colleague and therefore not for sale. This begins the emotional storyline for Baldric and Hexla this episode, labeling their relationship and what they mean to each other. What drove you, Brian and Leanne, to cover this particular topic? Was it just the comedic potential, or was this something you were specifically interested in for these two characters?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that from the very beginning, when we meet Hexel in season one in um, Lotions and Potions, that we understand that their relationship is all about an attraction that neither one is going to admit Readily, and their whole relationship is based on flinging insults at one another, uh, and and looking for one another's vulnerabilities. Um, and yet, you definitely feel that there's this attraction to them that, that becomes sweet at the end of that episode. So, even from the moment that we meet these two characters, uh, we know that there's that they're very um, that their relationship is complex. They clearly are attracted to one another. They have a long history with one another, and neither of them are ready to admit anything uh, anything deep. Uh, in their feelings for the other. So we've had now all all these episodes these 20 episodes to explore with them together to soften them in their relationship to each other and only now we're starting to get to a place where they might be willing to admit an attraction. So again it feels like a moment to say like okay you're going on a date does that mean you really are a thing is she your girlfriend is she your you know, is he your your lover? It, I go. what's happening here? Um, and, and it felt like we needed to really push them to say it in words uh, at, at this point in the story and to show that they're not ready for it yet. Uh, they're ready to admit an attraction, but they're not ready to define themselves in a relationship yet, especially not in front of other people. From the very beginning, all along, their relationship has been about what they're not willing to say and to try to force them uh, to say the words in this episode felt really fun.
0: That answers my question completely. Right. Nothing nothing better than spending a day in the pillories to really help you assess who matters to you in life. Perfect. Quick question. When and why did you decide to name Maggie's servant Man?
3: Okay, so we spend an inordinate amount of time combing through databases of old-fashioned names. We go to old Viking names, old Celtic names, old Anglo-Saxon names are a great source for us. Names from the Arthur legend. Turns out there are thousands of names in the Arthur legend. We go to there a lot. Uh, We go to old Danish names and Finnish names and Flemish names, and um, we just get into it as much as we can with these old names and that's so much fun and we have kind of a running list of of these goofy sounding old old names well we found the name man on a list of an anglo-saxon name m-a-n-n and we were looking you know we never begin the search for a name without understanding the personality of the character because we want the name to somehow sound like that personality. (laughs) So we're like, all right, we've got this guy. He's a servant. He's not appreciated. He's bossed around. He's trying to assert himself, but has zero power in the situation. And we wanted a name that sounded sort of like that. And it could sound funny when Maggie is bossing him around. And we are combing through these names and we land on man. And I just thought, how much better could it possibly be that this poor guy's name is man so that every time she tells him to do something man do this not now man it's just wonderful
0: it all comes madam from your misspent
2: youth
1: so i'm to blame sir
2: your school friends are a horrid lot of hideous harpies
1: well be that as it may this is all your fault
0: my fault
1: but i came to rescue you you weren't so devilishly handsome and utterly irresistible well
4: Yes, that's true.
1: Is that scent of Hawksbud with a splash of stallion sweat?
4: Maybe. It
1: shan't be long now, baldy (laughs) Schmoo. Listen
0: here, you scheming she-devil.
1: Oh, call me Maddie. Oh, poor
2: divine darling.
0: (laughs) Man, why are you standing there with your teeth in your head? Build the fire. Right away. So, Danielle, um, Hexla has to watch Maggi attempt to seduce Baldric while stuck in the stocks, which means, as we discussed, you, Danielle, had your actions restricted to the stocks. Hexla is such a physical character. What was it like playing her in such a physically restricted predicament? Was it stifling or freeing? What was that like for you?
1: They can't stop my hands. And like any good Italian woman, it's all about the hands. And they couldn't stop my face. I had more <laughs> mugging. I had more um, the range of emotion that I went through. <laughs> I was like, I must have been out of my mind in that episode. I think that, you know, being an actor from the theater and having done all the voice and movement work and all the dance work, it, it's already the emotions are living in my body. So even though I wasn't able to physically move my body, I was still having visceral reactions come up and out and so uh, it was all basically just hand work and gesticulation of the face. Um, and I was shockingly surprised how much chemistry, to the point where my mom called me, is there something going on between you and Joel? Because your chemistry from 20 feet apart inside a stockade, the pillory, she goes, you guys were on fire, how are you doing it? Is he married? Is he single? What's his situation? This was the phone call I had to have after the episode. So I think we all did our job with keeping the the love alive, even being, you know, basically self-questioning Quarantine in the pillory.
0: That's a lesson for all everybody who's alone and self-quarantined right now. Take a look at Hexla and Baldrick. It can be done from afar. Um, I will say this is my favorite Hexla episode today, and we'll talk about that more later, but man, I just love your performance in this episode. It's so it's so vulnerable. It's really great. We'll talk about it more later. Um, okay, so we've talked about the technical side of shooting this episode, which comprises too many plays. Let's talk about the acting side. So James, as the director, you come into work on a show for the first time and you end up with a major relationship episode for two characters you haven't worked with before. What's your prep like for
2: working with actors on a show who already know their characters so well? Being a first time director on uh, episodic TV uh, on a show that's already been going on for two seasons is very much like getting invited to a dinner party where you know not a soul Dinner party is thrown in a house you've never been in, and you've been asked to create the meal yourself using only ingredients found in that house, and your job is to create a dish for every individual person that you've never met that meets their every taste and desire. I mean, that, that's how I feel anytime I come into any sort of an ensemble, and, and honest, honestly, my job is to find out what the culture is and fast and and that comes from of course looking at many episodes it it also comes from talking to brian and leanne as much time as i can get with them about their vision for it because they're kind of overseeing it and then the other thing is to really pay attention to the actors because they they know their character and so paying close attention during table reads um really listening uh you know when when a scene is being blocked and, and you know not coming in and saying oh this is my show and and i have this vision for it but but listening is is a really um, important thing wow what an analogy that dinner party i'm going <laughs> to use that to
0: explain that to other people that's absolutely the best way i've ever heard it explained
2: yeah next time you're coming down on a director for you know first time director for just blown entirely think about that analogy because i just kind of like that yeah what a what a
0: job man i don't know how you do it and i don't have to because i just have to show up and say lines and stand where i'm told to okay so i believe the cow is the largest live animal on this show to date what was it like having that cow on set all day
4: the largest live animal so far we we are still lobbying to get a uh, elephant and a camel we'll see if we win that so it, it actually was was uh, tricky and scary, I'm going to be totally honest, to have a, an animal that large in an, a space that's that small. And we, uh, we actually auditioned a couple of uh, different cows, if you can believe it. I think it was the day before, a couple of days before we shot, we had two or three cows come in. And the first one that we brought we you know we opened the big it's called an elephant door <laughs> we opened the big elephant door to the studio and marched a cow from its you know cow trailer uh very you know safely into the swine and slosh tavern and when the cow got the first cow when the cow got onto the surface of the swine and slosh tavern it freaked out there was no one in there besides the animal trainer and i think maybe james and leanne and i just a few people and the cow did not like the feel of that surface under its feet and it started freaking out and the the sets are well built but in a fight between a large cow and the sets the sets are going to lose and I just had this vision of the sets getting knocked over or heaven forbid someone getting kicked by that cow and so that cow only lasted like 10 seconds and we said okay next cow and I didn't know if that was going to be the reaction to all cows but then we brought in our hero cow bonnie bonnie the cow which is the one that's in the episode and she just loved it Uh, she was very very uh, docile she walked on the surface no problem and then we backed her up into that little corner which when you think about how much that cow is on screen it's there a ton and we were shooting all day, and basically that cow has to sit still and be good for a very long day, which I couldn't really stay still that long, but you know, the, we had two animal trainers there, uh, both of which actually made the episode as extras, and so they were closest to the cow to help wrangle it if anything happened, uh, and then they were feeding it and taking care of it through the day, and we did give it some breaks, but basically Bonnie the cow performed like a champ, and it could have been a disaster, and I think if it were another cow, it would have been a disaster, um, uh, but you know the the cow, the animal wranglers, and then and then James, and a, a shout out to Goose, our first AD. He and the cow bonded, and in that beautiful moment where the cow really moves, uh Goose was right close to the cow, going moo moo, and then the cow started mooing back at our first AD Goose, and it was. An incredible moment, and after after that, the entire you know crew erupted into tears. So uh, so thank you, Bonnie the cow uh, and goose. If Bonnie hadn't been such a good cow, it would have been Leanne and me in a cow suit. That was the other option. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. So I have another cow question. How did you come up with this plot? Is this based on historical animal trials, or is it more allegorical with regard to witch trials and other kangaroo courts? <laughs>
3: Well, I'm going to say it, and you're not going to believe it, (laughs) but in the medieval period in Europe, they would put misbehaving animals on trial. No. They actually did. There's court record of it. Um, If the animal harmed someone, destroyed someone's property, they brought the animal in, and they put the animal on trial, And it's outrageous. I mean, on the one hand, it's just the saddest thing you've ever heard. But on the other hand, it's so absurd, you can't help but laugh. And so it was our our writer, Laura Eichhorn, who uh, was in our writer's room. And she was really a student of medieval history. And uh, so she brought a lot to our writer's room. And she brought in this little nugget <laughs> of, of history, this weird little court uh, courtroom nugget of history that, that animals would be placed on trial and they'd have a jury and they'd have a judge. And they'd, I mean, they would, it, it's just outrageous. So she brought that in and we started developing with her this idea of a courtroom drama inviting, involving an animal. Um, and uh, And that became the b story of the of the episode. <laughs> but that, yeah, absolutely that was the inspiration for it is it can't get weirder than than truth, right? <laughs> I
0: guess not. That is, I did not expect that answer. That's incredible.
4: I think it was something uh, developed by the attorneys to keep them keep them fully employed, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> got to get that cow money. <laughs> So something I particularly love about this episode is that every time Hexla and Baldrick are alone, they get down to planning and sniping and flirting and generally being very real and vulnerable with each other. And then they snap back to their covers as soon as Maggie and Man are around. So, Danielle, what was it like juxtaposing so clearly these two contrasting sides of Hexla?
3: Well, it, it, it,
1: it's a real treat, I think when um, the writers give me the opportunity in in the text to uh, to sort of show that more that vulnerability and that flirtation. Although I do get worried sometimes that I, I really lay it on a little too thick. I mean, we are a family-friendly show, and I'm constantly wondering, when are they going to be like, eh, like, stop, reel her back. I know they say it behind Video Village. I know it's what's being talked about. But they let me go. Um, <clears throat> It. Does, I mean, it feels, it just feels fun. I mean, comedy is all about the quick switches, right? The switches that you don't see coming, the duality and, and one moment you're going one down one Avenue and then all of a sudden you're on the next. And I have, I mean, I could talk days and days about how much I love working with Joel. And I, we've, we both have, have stated before that we, that we this is one of the best uh, partnerships in, in a, as far as being like a comedy duo that either one of us have ever experienced. At least, at least I believe that. I hope he still does after four seasons, but um it really is a joy, and and we really are there for each other. So so yeah. So I think whenever we get those moments to kind of sneak a little side glance in, or a little a little flirtation when the kids aren't around, we we thrive. We love it.
0: That's so funny. That's a great answer. All right. So there's this great moment when Hexla can't help but correct Maggie when she puts double the amount of dried bat required by the recipe into the adoration aroma. It turns out in the end it doesn't matter because Maggie doesn't heed Hexla's warning. But why does Hexla help in the first place?
1: There's such pride
0: within the witch's realm.
1: Every witch thinks that they're the witch that gets it, and nobody's gonna tell you how to do the recipe because you know how to do it. So I think there may have been a little bit of reverse psychology going on there, that if Hexala were to actually, it's kind of like hiding in plain sight, you know? It's like the murderer who really is about to kill someone, and someone comes in the room like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm planning on killing this person to my right. Oh, isn't that funny, Haha!" <laughs> and then they leave, and then the person gets stabbed in the throat, right? So, I feel like in that moment, it was a moment for Hexala to correct, course correct her because she knew the right answer. But also Hexala is a chess player. So I think that I knew that if I were to course correct her, she wouldn't maybe have figured out that she was making a mistake at some point and, and fix it herself. So the fact that I fixed it for her made her think that I was actually trying to throw her for a loop. Therefore, she'd continue to make the mistake. That was how I justified that line, I may be way off.
0: Some reverse psychology. That's great. What a great way to strategize.
3: I love that you went there uh, with that. Our thought was was where you started, with that she cannot help but be the one that knows how to do it. She's such a little know-it-all, and there's so much competition between these, these witches that like, no, 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 it, almost like an impulse. But I love that you played her um, a little a little more crafty, even, like, She's going to know that I'm not going to be able to resist this impulse. And if I plant this this seed, it'll ultimately cause her downfall. So I like that, that um, we got to play both, honestly. We got to play that she had the, the impulse to correct her and also keep Hexla very sophisticated and very crafty.
0: Brian and Leanne, Baldric is about to tell Hexla he loves her. And then he gets hit with the Adoration Aroma. Can't you just let us have that? Just... Just one time so we can savor the... Come up, please. Come on.
4: Come
3: on. No, 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 no.
0: You
4: think you want it, happen. but you really don't. <laughs> 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 it would ruin the next 25
0: episodes. <laughs> right. And of course, he doesn't actually get hit with the adoration aroma. He's faking it in that moment. And he dances. Uh, James, what was it like shooting the dance sequence? And I believe you just mentioned that you shoot a lot of things with dance sequences, so this was already in your wheelhouse, but what was it like shooting the dance sequence with both the actors and with the uh, dance doubles?
2: So we were really fortunate that uh, Brian and Leanne afforded us these dance doubles because they were actual stunt people, and but they also knew how to dance. Um, I, I had an idea when I, when I first read the script that this dance had to be a pretty big event and it needed, it needed a lot of spinning in order to tell the story properly of making her dizzy and spinning her into the, the pillory. So, um, we were fortunate enough to get those guys immediately went to, um, a choreographer that, that I had done this other show with, and she also does dancing with the stars. And she said, Oh, go look at the, the Huff brother and sister. Um, in this one waltz, I looked at it and I was like, that's it. So I brought that to the stunt coordinator and uh, together we worked out a dance, but in a traditional waltz, there's all this slow stuff going on. So every time there was a, a moment to add a spin, we added a spin. So it was all about anything to get us to a spin. And then Joel was hugely helpful in terms of finding those moments where we could do the dip and where he and Uh, his witch counterpart, who actually learned the dance, you know, could take over. And so it it was really, I thought it was really nicely interspersed, the the actual actors with the stunt doubles. And then my favorite shot of that sequence, we were fortunate enough to put the camera overhead shooting through uh, some of those medieval castle chandeliers. And the nice thing about that was you could really see the spinning from a graphic standpoint, kind of like when you spin a top when you're a kid and you're looking down on it. Um, and th- I think that sold the jumps from stunt to actors uh, to actor dancers.
0: I think you're right. It also gives the whole thing a a grand feeling, like they're in the beauty and the beast ballroom with these chandeliers going and and it just gives the space a large grand feel. It looks great. Anything with a dance, I'm happy. So that was was a a real pleasure to watch. So we finally get the moment where Baldrick tells Hexla that he adores her. Danielle, what was this moment like?
3: This moment
1: was very technically challenging because you know, you actually, Joel and I had a very specific conversation about this the other day. We couldn't wait for the moment where, where we're about to kiss, and emotionally it was all teed up. And uh, it was it was really one of those moments where, <clears throat> as an audience member, you don't understand or you can take for granted because you've never experienced just how technical acting for the camera is. And so, fortunately, with James's great direction and the guidance of our brilliant DP, banked it was. I had to fall just so the face 30 degrees this way to make sure it's getting my best angle with the best lighting and the eyes are blue and popping. And there's all these elements in the hair and they're pulling my hair back. And it was, it was very, the stakes felt high. And I'm always, I'm an actor who always wants to give a hundred percent. And I said, possibly even 200% if you work with me, it's like, it's a lot of energy, but I knew in this moment that it was so important for Hexala and Baldrick to finally let their guard down. So we have this emotional moment with the characters and then you're also as an actor thinking of the technical moment and hoping that having that in your brain isn't taking you out of the moment emotionally. And I think we got it because when I watched it, I got I got really teared up. I, I was so amazed just by that beauty of that moment overall.
0: It's really fun to see both of you so vulnerable in that moment when you're both playing characters while well, Baldrick's always taking care of the kids and is very, Ryan, sarcastic, and Hexla is obviously very guarded much of the time. And it's a really nice—it kind of feels like the world falls still, and you get this true moment between them. And then the plot picks back up again. And then right after that, uh, James, there's this shot of Danielle framed by the stocks once she's out of them, when she says not to let Maggie out of her stocks yet— Was that planned in pre-production or is that something you and Banked found on the day?
2: So I have to say that was one of my all time favorite shots of the entire show. And it just came at the key moment. And I have to give credit to Danielle for that shot because Banked and I planned a lot of interesting shots with pillories and, you know, having these stationary foreground things and there was talk of shooting through. And we watched Danielle block this and she took charge. And this this is her uh, this is her camera savvy that was talking because she stood there and she wasn't peering through that hole. She was glowering. You know, she was like right there. Banked and I saw that big smiles on our face. Instantly, the cameras went and found that. Uh, but I really have to give credit to Danielle for that, because that was that was totally performance driven and and a really great instinct.
0: So cool. I love that. Collaboration at its finest.
1: Thank you, James. And thank you for letting me feel that. It just felt, you know what I felt like? I felt like it was the moment where I was bringing down the guillotine. And I just, I saw it because he had the wood on the wood. And I knew that I'd still be in there and I'd give you that look that you needed. So thanks for letting me play with you on that. I was appreciate it so much.
2: It was such an intense moment. And it was, it was sort of like a Batman and Robin moment. Because Joel was just off behind you as your sidekick. Just as, you know, like, yeah, what she said. And uh, it, it was great. It was really, really fun and, and great idea.
0: And thank goodness the stocks were as tall as they were because that allowed that framing to take place. So the pain may have been worth it in the end. Um, okay. Brian and Leanne, Maggie and Mann are happy. Hexla and Baldrick have taken their relationship to the next level. And the cow is off the hook compared to the end of Mirabelle, which is filled with heart, but also sacrifice and loss. This episode is all happy endings. In outlining a season, do you take care to intersperse happy and sad endings, or with respect to this, do the chips just fall as they may?
3: So, yeah, we definitely look at an entire season and try to give it ebb and flow. Uh, so if we know that there's going to be one particularly kind of zany raucous romp episode uh we might after that give something with a little bit more heart or a little bit more uh drama to it just so that it feels like we're not repeating ourselves tonally too much so if you look at season three (laughs) you see that we came from fancy pants one of our most insane (laughs) episodes and then we brought it kind of down to mirabelle that's so sweet and tender uh but like you say has this this uh sort of sad tone to it uh, and from there um, just desserts felt like a nice place to go tonally where things can kind of work out for for the characters. everyone gets their just desserts um, gets what they deserve. And so uh, it did feel like it it belonged uh, in in its spot in the season. Um, and it was a almost a happy accident as, as you know we, we um, shot Mirabelle, over a year and a half ago in Utah, saved that episode for this moment. Um, and then this episode, Just Desserts, we actually shot sort of late-ish last summer and and uh, looked to where it would fit well. And we had the luxury of, of being able to say, hey, that would slide in really nicely right there. That's a luxury most shows don't have. Um, and so we felt very, very lucky that we were able to to look at it kind of from a, a high level uh, and choose where to place these episodes so that they could be a nice complement and contrast to one another.
4: yeah, that, that is that is definitely one of the uh, luxurious advantages of being so far ahead of schedule that we can we can change the shooting order, which we've done quite a bit uh, when we, obviously we have our thoughts of what the episode's going to be on the page. But then after it you know goes through uh, the production machine with the actors and the director and all the rest of the of the crew and and talent, we say like, oh wow, this will totally work better over here, and and luckily we have that luxury to do that. Uh, and then one other quick uh, s- side note on that uh, on that title, Leanne reminded me, uh, we we titled it "Just Desserts," meaning that everyone gets what they deserve. But apparently that's apparently we're old or that's an antiquated term or something because most many of the other actors didn't understand that and they thought this they're like where's the dessert in this episode and they (laughs) and, and actually there was a contingent to they were lobbying us to change the title many people didn't like the title uh because i guess it doesn't you know translate to everyone but for us it really uh encapsulated the the episode really nicely but just so everyone knows, that's what it means. It's not about uh, ice cream or cakes or cookies.
0: All right. Well, that wraps it up for season three, episode five of Dwight in Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind the scenes podcast about everything, Dwight. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Danielle. And thank you, James. You can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Leanne at Leanne H Adams. You can follow Danielle at Danielle Bizzuti. You can follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor. And you can follow me at The Josh Breslow. Tune in again next week for Season 3, Episode 6, Lake Monster. Until then, I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. If you're quarantined on your own, reach out to some friends and discover something new about them. If you're lucky enough to be with loved ones, try something new together. An adventure at home, it might change your life. Dwight and Shining Armor The Sunken Kingdom is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Breslow. The theme song is composed by Christian Davis, executive producers Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams.